Hey, this is Kara from Ruminate, and you're listening to Questionable Food. Once again, we have created a completely separate, free, toxic, honestly toxic charity model that is doing more harm than good at this point. This episode, I chat with Mackenzie Jackson, Program Manager for the Good Food Systems Initiative at Access of West Michigan, a poverty-focused nonprofit based in Grand Rapids, Michigan. She teaches us about toxic charity models, the difference between perceived and actual need, and how social good projects that feel good aren't necessarily the ones that have the most impact. Thank you so much for joining me, Mackenzie. Now, we're here today to talk about the big picture with regard to access to healthy, fair, and affordable food. I know over at Access of West Michigan, you guys assess the full picture of poverty when strategizing solutions. Can you share with me a bit about how this view translates into your food access work? I think it starts in our communities and looking at what resources are there, how do people have access, or what support can you provide, even as simple as education, but just creating opportunity and breaking down some of those barriers that often aren't addressed along with food because people will see a need for food and just assume hungry. Some of those big, gross words that I don't like, but like they're hungry, they're starving, like they just need food, there's nothing else. But instead looking at the whole picture and seeing why, why is this person coming through the pantry door? Why do they need food? Can you share a bit about the diversity of reasons that might cause someone to walk through that pantry door? The way we look at it, food is a basic human right. That is something that everyone deserves to have access to and everybody should be able to get and receive. So we work from the framework of there are other things at play when people are coming through the pantry door. So if we aren't addressing things such as income, people aren't working for a living wage and they're in a survival mode. Living in poverty, they may choose to pay their you know, light bill before they go and buy a week's worth of groceries. We have to take into account all of the other things that are at play when people are coming in through the pantry doors. So that's the why behind food needs to be affordable. People need to have access to it. And then the healthy piece is just because someone may not be able to afford food from the grocery store or they are shopping at an affordable market, they have the right and the choice to be able to shop, one, in a dignified experience, and two, have access to the nutritious foods that that is going to fuel and feed their body because um you know if they're fighting a chronic disease and they're eating ramen that somebody donated or cans of soup that somebody donated like that's not going to fuel their body and we try to look at poverty as like a simple layered issue but it's very it's multi-layered and food when we look at food we have to look at all the other disparities that play into that So I think that's why Access has moved to try to take a broad approach of we can't just isolate one thing because then all the other things come to pay. Because if someone has access but they can't afford the food, then what is that helping? Yeah. So I I would say that's why we've taken the approach. And we've aligned ourselves with the Michigan Good Food Charter Mm -hmm. where access, affordability, healthy, fair, green food is where that's rooted from and just recognizing that all of those things benefit our local food system. And if we want a thriving local food system, we have to buy into all of those. How do you unpack it in an area? How do you tease apart that web and figure out, okay, this is what West Michigan needs and assess the situation? Uh, honestly, I think it's very dependent on the community that you're in because 
each community has different assets. Mm -hmm. So we have to look at where the community is already thriving or things that we can build off of because I think throughout the process of being a nonprofit, Access has learned that we can't swoop in and do things. We need to build off the community. The community are the experts Mm -hmm. and they know what's best for what they need. Yeah. So I think a lot of our work has shifted around that, doing listening sessions, getting feedback and understanding what the community already has, who is already an expert there, and then trying to just provide support, resources, and different opportunities to build things that will benefit the community, whether it's fresh food in their community that they haven't had, connecting to local farms to come in to that community, or honestly, if it is transportation, figuring out those things that aren't already there. So to speak specifically to West Michigan and your guys' work, what are those buckets that are really top of mind for you to work on with community partners? And then what are things that you see as assets that West Michigan has? When I hear that question, I think about our five fresh market sites and how they all are very different, which is really cool Mm -hmm. because they all carry different assets. I I would say that a common thread throughout all of them that would probably be an issue is, yeah, things such as transportation, language barrier. Like if people don't have staff that can translate, then we have a language barrier there and we don't want that ever to be an issue for access to um, healthy, affordable food. So talking through that, I even think of things like childcare. Our sites host classes. So, like, what does that look like to have child care, to not have child care? Like, what do we, how do we get creative around healthy living classes? Yeah. But I think a lot of the assets that I've seen, when there is not staff turnover, the relational aspect is the biggest asset that nonprofits and our community partners can have because once that relationship is built with neighbors, Neighbors are so willing to give feedback and come to community listening sessions, and they really feel heard, especially when movement and action starts happening Mm. around things that they're saying. So often, nonprofits eliminate the voice of the community that they're trying to serve. We've learned and we've grown, but I feel like we want to center that voice, and we want to make sure that's the voice that we are uplifting, supporting, and that's where we're creating opportunity for the voice to be heard because I'm going to keep going back. We can't swoop in. The community already has assets. Mm -hmm. We just need to build from them and think creatively around what they're missing or how we can support in that way. So you guys are doing a ton of work to address immediate emergency needs, and um, we've talked about that in kind of previous conversations, but I know you and I both work and think in terms of that long-term solution, and that's what you've been chatting about a lot as well here, is, you know, what is that problem that we need to solve behind just hunger? Why is that occurring? So when we're working to that, has the current crisis shaped in any way how you view your role and your organization and kind of addressing these access issues in the future? I would say that the global pandemic just has highlighted that the work that we are doing is so necessary because it is revealing all of our systemic inequities. And before COVID-19 hit, these inequities were there. And that's what ACCESS is slowly but surely working to address is these root cause issues, these systemic issues. And now that COVID-19 is revealing some of these systemic 
equities, it's it's very clear that we have to take a systemic approach because if another global pandemic were to hit, we don't want to be in the position where we're still working in an emergency charity model. Yeah. And we need to move to something that is long-term to address these disparities. So I would, short answer to your question would be, no, this has not changed how we do our work. This has not affected how we're thinking about our work. I would say, if anything, it affirmed that what we're doing is exactly what we need to be doing and that maybe coming out of this, we will have more partners that will want to collaborate and do some of this work alongside of us, even though we already have so many great partners. But, you know, maybe partners specifically will be thinking about their work a little differently. It might be a little too soon, but do you think that it's going to be a little bit easier to perhaps make those arguments for those longer term solutions and those shifts against that emergency charity model? My gut wants to say no, (laughs) because we've been operating 40 years ago. The food pantries were supposed to be an emergency response. And here we are in 2020. We still have food pantries popping up. So my gut is like, no. But then I want to live in hope and believe that maybe people can sit back and look at the disparities that are being highlighted and saying, how do we address these? And not with an immediate response or a Band-Aid fix, but how do we really get proactive through strategy and really fix these deep root issues, which at Access, we have a joke. Talking about systems isn't sexy. It's not appealing. People want to do the Band-Aid work because that, you know, makes you feel good, but we have to move away from that. So I'm hopeful that people will look at the emergency response as something that cannot be long-term because it's not addressing any deep disparities. But I don't know. When you say disparities or when you say core problems or those foundational problems, do you have a way that you break it down regularly or is it more about that philosophy of getting and unpacking what lies beneath? We as a good food team have some overarching values, growing health in our communities, growing health in institutions, just making that something that is easier for people, that is inclusive. Um, We have investing in our local food economy. That is huge to us. So figuring out creatively how we can do that with partners or, you know, access how we can do that. And then we have community engagement. And then I would say one that's being like birthed because we cannot talk about our systems without talking about racism is the racial justice piece is definitely something that where I would say we're being more vocal about, which is huge, because so often when, you know, we're talking about food, it's marginalized communities that are in that conversation. Completely. But around disparities, health disparity is huge right now, and mm-hmm. just equity in general, really. Yeah. Really a, a direct segue from our talk about kind of like that funder perspective, that partner perspective. You verbalized to me that phrase of perceived versus actual need quite a bit. And what does that mean? And how do you define that perceived versus actual need issue? Yeah, I think that directly falls into the way the charity food system was built. So like supply is going to create demand. So if we continue to open pantries, advertise our service, really increase food donations because we have this perceived need that this is where people are going to continue to shop, want to shop, and this is the need that they have, of course it's going to continue to grow. 
But if we flip that and look at our charitable systems, instead of investing into local businesses or small farms and things, we're going to kill our economy. But the, the perceived need is that people want free, cheap food. That's a perceived need. That if you are giving out free food donations, people will just run and line up. And like, yes, is there a time for an emergency response? Absolutely. But we have to flip the coin and also look at what the actual need is. If someone is going to the pantry three times in one day, is that an actual need or is that a sense of scarcity? And because that's also amplified when like crisis happens or in our office, we were using the toilet paper example. That was not an actual need. No one actually needed to go buy up every single roll of toilet paper, but there was a perceived need that we are going to need toilet paper. It's going to be scarce. So what did people do? They started buying up. So we like to flip the coin and that also goes back to root causes. There are other things going on if someone feels they need to go to the pantry three times in one day. What else is there? What's happening? Because if we continue to create a supply and demand for charitable food resources, we really are going to kill our local economy and local entrepreneurship because nobody's going to be investing in those small farm skills or small shops and things because of this perceived need. Mm-hmm. I want to speak to Grand Rapids because that's the community that I work in, but Grand Rapids is so philanthropic that there were many nonprofits birthed, and now they're grounded in this charitable food model. So these institutions are in a process of either continuing to try to survive as a charitable food model or making some institutional change and moving towards something that's more sustainable or, you know, becoming like a beacon for health in their community. It looks different depending on what institution you're talking about. But it definitely is going to take a shift because we have hundreds of nonprofits addressing food access. We have different churches as well working to address food insecurity, but they're using the emergency charity food model, which is just creating literally a separate food system that is over four decades old now. So it's not going to be easy, but we have to be innovative and think differently about how we can put our dollars back into our local food economy and what that looks like when we're talking about affordability and creating access, just because, once again, we have created a completely separate, free, toxic, honestly toxic charity model that is doing more harm than good at this point. So what is a toxic charity model to you? How do you define that? It's simply some sort of response that is actually doing more harm to the people that you're trying to help than good. So looking at marginalized communities and sometimes the charity that are in those communities aren't actually solving any of the root issues or the systemic inequities and disparities. So that is only perpetuating the issue. It looks good. It feels good. But it's actually not addressing any of those deeper rooted things that need to be addressed to actually make change in the community. And can you describe a little bit about how they can be a little bit stealth in that way? How could something that appears to be helping not be helping? I think a really great example is food drives. Yeah. (laughs) Because the intent behind that is super great. 
if we want to look at it, we can look at intent versus impact. Mm -hmm. The intent behind a food drive is super great. People are trying to come together, but then we have to take into consideration like what the actual need for a community or pantry resource center is. Because a lot of the time, if you talk to pantry resource centers, donations of shelf-stable food or food that's been in your cupboard is not exactly what they would like to be receiving. Honestly, we have been trying to message that a cash donation to a food pantry will go way further than your shelf-stable expired food ever will. So, like, once again, the intent behind that food drive was great. The people behind the food drive were looking to bridge a gap between someone who does not have access to food and maybe provide a meal. But most of the time between sorting and by the time somebody goes through the pantry, that food is not going to be used. So once again, you're not impacting anything and the intent behind it was great. So it's just perpetuating the issue of we're doing good, we're raising money, whatever it is. And we feel good as people. We feel good about it. We get some sort of satisfaction, but there's no change really being made once that food is donated because once again there's deeper rooted issues is ramen noodles going to be the first choice someone wants should that even be an option or do all people deserve a healthy affordable food which is yes the answer is yes but it's definitely going to take a whole society shift in like understanding of how complex poverty is and food insecurity is just because like we've talked about earlier we look at it as like there's this one solution if we push out all the food donate all the food, people will not be food insecure. But obviously, decades later, like, that's not the answer. And so when we use the term toxic charity model, that is toxic to continue to perpetuate this emergency food response or this abundance of food when really we're not addressing the root causes. And so let's talk about opportunities for action and dismantling that model. What can an individual consumer do? What can a funder do or a nonprofit? What's step one in addressing actual needs rather than perceived needs? Something we talk about a lot is looking at data instead of emotional stories. Yeah. Because if you pay attention a lot of the time, it's the emotional feel-good stories. We fed these 10 families and, you know, they didn't go to bad hungry that night like which I I want to back up and say that once again there is a time for emergency food response right now we have to have a gap and we need a little bridge for it but we need to get to the other side of something that's long-term and sustainable we can't live in emergency food response but I would first say start with looking at the data instead of stories and then we need to go to our community because often our low-income communities that we are looking to serve or are serving they are the experts but often are not at the table to think creatively or come up with ideas or you know give input Um, and we have just done our communities so wrong by not putting them at the table but I will say I think that's something that is changing is that people are looking to bring community members to the table but I don't know if they're actually listening. So it's, there's a yeah. difference between bringing someone to the table and listening to them and taking their input and applying it. And then there's the other side of, okay, we're going to bring you to the table because we know this is what we should be doing. And then we're not going to take any action. So I think it's honestly, we need to support, uplift, and find community leadership because in times of adversity, they've become resilient and have 
faced different challenges and have pivoted and changed and been creative in their own ways that I feel like sometimes we as organizations or funders or program people like we don't even know because we're not taking the time to tap in and really listen and then support and uplift what is already being done. It sounds like speaking to community members might be happening, but there's a huge difference between having a conversation, getting a poll quote about thank you for bringing my family dinner this evening rather than actually valuing the expertise of that individual and their ideas and thinking that they have something to contribute. I think it's so much easier for people to be like, you know, hand out that free dinner and then they go, you know, they step away. Like I was saying earlier, like poverty is so much deeper than that. So if we don't take the time to go deep and bring funders, policymakers, nonprofit institutions and community members, a group of diverse people to the table, then, you know, we're really not going to be able to start chipping away and addressing inequities because it's not easy and it's not it's not fun. We have to be able to really get uncomfortable and have those conversations. So let's talk about empathy and the mindsets of the average Americans and politicians and funders and everyone that is part of this change system and that understanding of individuals other than ones that look like you. What role do you think America's perception of access and what access means, the thought that definitely exists that either consciously or subconsciously for some Americans that certain individuals may not deserve access in the same ways that other have? What are your thoughts on that perception piece? <sighs> that That's like a loaded question. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's, it's hard because the first thing that we say our access is we can't talk about any of these systems addressing the food system anything without talking about racism because that is subconsciously consciously it's there and we've just grown up in a society where things have been internalized for people of color and things have been internalized for white people so like it's there and there's always going to be that tension but I think the more that we gather and you're sitting down with people that that don't look like you and understanding you know the process or the story behind things I think we can start to break down some barriers but honestly that's going to take time that's going to take people willing to be even more uncomfortable and address their own internalized superiority or oppression and it's going to be a process but really we can't move forward and make change if we're not having different people at the table and specifically I want to highlight, like, if we aren't having people of color at the table, that's a big red flag. Yeah. Probably should look to build some relationships and have that voice at the table because often a lot of these resources and things that we are looking to create are normally, unfortunately, in communities of color. And so often they're left out of the conversation. There's also that foundational income divide that is statistically biased for communities of color that play into it as well. And this crisis is creating a simulation, really, for many Americans where, you know, an estimated 20% are utilizing some sort of government support system. Normally, those are really partisan, but people are experiencing what it is to not have access to some of these things, not knowing where your food's coming and not having a reliable income 
Do you think that the fact that they are more individuals that may not be systemically normally experiencing these things, that they are now forced to experiencing it, is that going to change how they think about access or how they might think about someone else's experience that is more likely to experience these things just because of how our society is structured? No, I don't want to be cynical or whatever, but no, because this is a brief period of their life that they are experiencing this. And I will back up and give people who are experiencing this and will have some sort of internal shift. I will give them, I will clap for them and that will be great. But to have the shift that it's going to take internally is pretty significant for you to come out of this. If you've never lived a day in your life in poverty, to come out of this and want to do some real deep change. And I think that's where we have to clarify because, yeah, I'm sure people are going to come out of this and want to give and want to feed into our toxic charity model. But I would want to be the voice of reason and say, okay, coming out of this, if you're going to want to do something like put your dollars, whatever it is, dollars, time into something that's going to be addressing like systemic issues and maybe because when I hear that I hear that the people who maybe would have a shift are people who have been living in privilege who have had the privilege to never worry about some of these issues so I would also challenge them to come out and use their voice and stand against some of the things that are happening across our country that are playing into some of these systemic issues but no my short answer is no and you know I like really hope there's a time that I'm alive that my answer could be yes but poverty is deeper than what we portray it to be or there's not one size fits all to address these issues and to come up with a solution and that's great it should not be a one size fits all it needs to look different depending on the community and it needs to look different depending on the people that you're serving and it has to be different sizes but I think so often we just try to blanket and address it with one solution but that one solution isn't going to work for everybody so yeah no (laughs) no that's perfectly legitimate and completely makes sense let's talk about those exciting pieces on the horizon what gets you geared up to work and what shows you that the goals that you have might someday be possible that you could achieve these things the number one thing that I'm, I will say is collaboration with other community partners. So coming to the table with like-minded people and people who are thinking differently, but talking through creative solutions and really dreaming up a new food system, honestly, and like what that would look like. And then trying to implement small changes, starting small and interrupting the system where we can And then also inviting people into that because it's not fair to assume or not bring people to the table and give them the opportunity or chance. So I would say the number one thing that excites me is inviting people in to do this work because it is hard and it's going to take a long time. But to be able to extend that invite, and I'm not going to say every time it's extended people buy in, but the, you know, handful or more that do buy in, that's so rewarding and exciting because then we have more change agents out in our community who are doing this work and who are breathing and living this work and like influencing other people to get on board. So it just is a bigger trickle effect. And then I would say, well, kind of piggybacking off of that, I think it's so cool to see institutions evolve who have started in toxic charity and are moving into something that is equitable, inclusive, being a health beacon in their neighborhood 
and really being advocates for all of the work that we are doing, that probably is something that I literally get so much energy when I think about that because that takes time. And like when people have committed to making the change and really staying true to like their values and what they believe, you can just see that like replicate in their community too. Like more community members are coming. It's not just a food pantry. Like there's relationships being built and that brings me energy because that's what we want to see. We want to see us phase out of this band-aid era and really move into something that's sustainable, inclusive, healthy, somewhere where anybody can go no matter what your income is. And it's just a beacon in the community. So that that really excites me. I appreciate you chatting with me today, Mackenzie. Your perspective is so important. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. To learn more about the work of Access West Michigan, follow the link available in this episode's description or visit them at accessofwestmichigan.org.